So last Sunday, we, uh, I specifically said that we were going to begin our course or our, uh, this next session uh, or series on the, uh, the posture of a disciple, and I said it was 2.1, lesson 2.1. Uh, I actually taught 2.2, and anyone that has a book will know, uh, if you're trying to follow me, uh, as you started on 2.1, you're like, where is he? I was on lesson 2.2. So today, with the help of the Lord, I'm going to teach on lesson 2.1. So we're going to backtrack a little bit, all right? So hopefully you have your books, and hopefully it didn't throw you off too much last time. But uh, this is series two, The Posture of a Disciple. And the big idea of this series is to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, we must develop the posture of a disciple. So here in 2.1, we're going to talk about everyone being a disciple. And if you could say that with me, everyone is a disciple. Everyone is a disciple. Amen. So I want to be a disciple. That's what the Lord has called us to do, to be. And we're going to talk some more about that today. But in order to become a disciple, we have to become, uh, in order to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ, we must make the choice to follow him. And it's as simple as that. We must make the choice to follow him. So if I'm going to be a disciple, that means I'm following Jesus. And following Jesus means whenever I see him, I have to go after him. Uh, and sometimes, well not just sometimes, but there are many places in the word of God that we're called to respond by faith. Jesus meets us in a place, a place of faith, and then he begins to walk in front of us, preparing the way before us, and he says, come after me. Come after me. And we have to respond as disciples of Christ to go after him. Because if we don't, we're going to remain in that spot, and we're not going to grow. And I want to become a mature disciple. Amen. Uh, so before we get started here on uh, reading these scriptures for this morning, uh, I want to extend my thanks to our pastors for being able to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning and for you, wonderful people, for being here. Um, and uh, let's just go before the Lord today in prayer and ask him to bless us with his word and to, uh, and to change us and help us to grow into mature disciples today. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks, O oh God, for your goodness and for your love and for the power of your word. I give you thanks that you are here among us, and I give you thanks for these people, for the congregation of the Lord today. I thank you, Jesus, for every life gathered here, and I pray that as we go through this lesson that you will challenge us to be transformed, oh God, into even more mature Christians, even more mature disciples, as we learn Jesus and as we come after you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our scripture focus today begins with Luke 6, 39 through 40, and I'm going to read that to you. And he spake a parable unto them, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Luke 6.40, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Amen. So that means this, this uh, portion of scripture here is connecting the Pharisees with being blind. He said, all of you who are following the blind Pharisees, well, you're going to be led into blindness. You're going to be led into a ditch because no disciple can be better than his master. So it's important as disciples today that we have our eyes squarely on Jesus and not on other things. Because if our eyes are not squarely on him, then we may be tempted into calling some other thing our master. 
And it can be easy for that to happen. Um, goals for the day can become a master of us. Plans for tomorrow can become a master of us. Things we enjoy to do, we enjoy doing can become a master of us. And I don't ever want those things to become a master of me. I want Jesus to be a master of me. I want Jesus to be the one who leads and guides me. Amen. So today, we're going to begin with this story. When they first met him, they were not sure exactly how to take him. His reputation had preceded him, and it was not good. They had been told he was adamant, self-assured, intolerant, a bully to be feared. But now, casting their eyes on him for the first time, his reputation did not fit the man who stood before them. He was kinder and gentler than their expectation, but nevertheless confident, assured, and self-reliant. His speech was persuasive, and his superior intellect was evident. They had been trained by their leader many years prior. He was not exactly a pushover himself due to his strong personal disciplines. He required the same of his students. He had been raised and educated far away from the big city in a remote area, a place where only the strong and fit could survive. It was his acute awareness of his mission that passionately drove him to fulfill his assignment. Although their teacher had died, what seemed to be untimely and an untimely and tragic death, 20 years later they were still holding to his teachings. That's pretty impressive. After all, John the Baptist had been a breakthrough prophet, shattering the stale religious air with his booming voice and fresh anointing. He had emptied out every synagogue within walking distance as the hungry and the curious spilled into the wilderness to see a man preach like a reed shaken in the wind. Circumstances had brought them to Ephesus, where they continued in the tradition of John, but all along sensing there might be something more for them. Now they were being approached by an upstart rabbi or an upstart teacher who had come to town with a new doctrine. They were overjoyed to learn there was something more than just the baptism of repentance preached by John the Baptist, and they could now be baptized for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus. No sooner had they heard this news than they were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples of John the Baptist had found their new rabbi, the Apostle Paul. I find it interesting how these uh, disciples of John responded to Paul. They responded in excitement. They responded with joy. They responded in obedience. And I wonder, you know, how we would answer the question of how difficult we think it may have been for John's disciples to become followers of Paul. For their master, or for their rabbi, John the Baptist, to have been uh, to have suffered the way he did and to be sentenced to death the way he was and now here comes Paul and he has more teaching for them but I want to remind you today that faith begins with decision faith has forward motion if we come to just if we come to a moment where we have light or revelation given into our hearts and we stop there then our faith stops where we stop but faith calls us onto into a journey Faith calls us into action. That's why the word tells us that faith without works is dead. So I think that whenever these, uh, these disciples of John heard the testimony of Paul, I think, I think they probably came alive. They were like, wow, there's more to it. There's more to it. And 
and it was revealed to them and they responded. You know, a sincere disciple will respond in that way. A sincere disciple who hears truth and hears the, the uh, teaching that called them into greater faith, they're going to respond in that way with excitement, with zeal, with saying, okay, you know, I'm going to, this, this is something I have to follow through with. I think disciples like as John had, I think those type of disciples are the ones who go from faith to faith. And I want to go from faith to faith today. Amen. But what is required to transition from being a believer to becoming a disciple? It's interesting whenever we consider what it means to be a believer or how we operate as believers. For instance, Mark 16, 17 says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. And if we look at that, it's interesting because these are things that people do when they believe. It's action. So if you tell me something and I believe it, if you tell me, if, if the Lord told me, come on out and walk on this water, I'm first I'm going to believe that he is, and then I'm going to believe that what he told me I could do, I could do. And so belief has action to it. it sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, and, we, and this is important to point out in Hebrews 11:6. Now check this out. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe, one, that he is. And two, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So my belief can stop with just believing that he is. I've met a lot of people who stopped with just believing that something was. But this says that if we're going to have faith and please him, we must believe, we must come to God and believe that he is, and then what put action to our belief? We must diligently seek him. And diligently seeking him is where, is where the rubber meets the road. That's where we, we find what it means to be called to be a disciple. Because it's real easy to profess with my mouth and say, oh yeah, I believe God is. But it's a completely another thing to diligently seek after I've said I believe that God is. I want to have faith today. I want to go from faith to faith. I want to be someone who has forward motion in my life. I don't want to stop just hearing a sermon and saying I believe it. I don't want to just stop with hearing a lesson and say I believe it. I don't want to stop in my prayer room when I've heard the still small voice seem to drown out all the other voices in my life. I don't want to stop and just say, okay, God, I believe it. But I want to diligently seek after what I believed. If God tells me that, I, that he has a purpose for my life, I want to seek after that purpose. I want, to, I want training. I want, to be, I want to be taught. I want to learn. I want to sacrifice. Because that's what it means to seek after what we believe. So without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So the transition from becoming a believer to a disciple is going beyond just, I believe what you said. I believe that you are. But it's saying, I'm going to come after you and diligently seek. Amen. According to the record of Acts 19, John the Baptist had made disciples. Two decades after he was martyred, his followers still adhered to his teachings and doctrine. So these are pretty, 
on fire, uh, these are pretty on fire disciples. These are people who heard and responded and then began diligently seeking what Paul, what John had said was going to come. It was remarkable then when Paul discovered these elders in Ephesus and found them to be faithful to their rabbi after so many years. They had not yet received any further revelation other than what had been taught by John. Their determination to hold, on, hold to the baptism of John speaks of the power of making disciples. Suffice it to say, when disciples are made, they last, and they're meant to last. Jesus defined what it meant to be his disciple. That's your first blank. Jesus defined what it meant to be his disciple. He required his disciples to subordinate every other relationship in devotion to him. Luke 14 and 26 reads, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty strong word to use the word hate. But it's rhetorical in this situation. It's rhetorical in the way that Jesus is using it. Uh, his actual, the actual meaning that we can infer from this is to love less these other things. Because if you don't love less, you're not going to be able to come after Jesus the way that he may call you and the way that he calls you. So interestingly enough, when Jesus uses this word hate, we, we have an emotional response to that. And I would open Q&A maybe, but maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't do that right now. But I'm, I'm curious what it means, what you feel when, when that word hate is used. Because when that word hate is used, it's, it's denoting a virtue or the opposite of a virtue, which is a vice. If I hate something, it's a vice in my life. The opposite of hate is love. It's a virtue. Love is a virtue. So this crowd would have understood when Jesus said hate, he's speaking about the things that society held as a virtue. And last, last Sunday we talked about how uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't normal it wasn't normal practice for someone to leave their family uh, and not take care of burial rites. It was ethically wrong for Jews to do that. So when Jesus is saying, hate this, he's saying, the greater, love that less and love me with everything. Because I'm calling you to a spirit of prophecy, a testimony of who I am. Jesus wants you to bear testimony of who he is. He wants each and every one of us to have that spirit of prophecy in our lives is able to tell people of the power of Jesus in our lives. And if Jesus has ever washed you, if, if Jesus has ever washed away your sins today, you have a great testimony in this place. You have a great power in your life that is the spirit of prophecy. And I'm thankful for that today. If you're thankful for that today, why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Lord. So love is a virtue. So if you don't love less, father, mother, wife, and children, brethren, and sisters, whenever Jesus calls you away from something that you were once seeing as an ethical responsibility, you might miss out on, this, on the gift of the spirit of prophecy God wants you to receive in your life. You might miss out on a miracle that you're able to testify of Jesus of whenever you say, yeah, I had, I had this job lined out. It was going to be amazing. But whenever the Lord called me to minister in another country, 
I left everything, I left everything there, I loved it less, and I went to where God told me to go. And that's what he's talking about. We have to love everything less and follow the voice of God. So rejection by family was to be expected in this case, of, of, uh, in this social context. It was expected. Whenever you, whenever, whenever you uh, believed in a rabbi, especially, uh, especially the teaching of Jesus, that was going to have some major impact on your social dynamics. And in this context of when Jesus says this, he's, he's speaking to devout people, devout Jews, Gentiles who maybe were idolater, idolatry or involved in idolatry, idol worshipers. And he said, come on out. You have to reject all of this and you have to follow me. And I want to be someone who responds to Jesus. He, demand, he demanded that his disciples carry a cross. That's the second thing. And we talked about that yes, or last, last Sunday. In Luke 14 and 27, a disciple without a cross is no disciple. Luke 14, 27 says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he's saying if you are not carrying a cross, there's, there's, no, there's no question about it. You can't be my disciple. That's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. That ought to, you know, that makes me want to step back and reflect and say, man, have, am I carrying my cross? Am I carrying it well? Am I letting other people carry it? I have to carry my cross. And to bear a cross is to accept the rejection of the world, as Jesus did, as we follow in footsteps to look. To love those who would even persecute and hate us. It's to love those people who would even, would even transgress against us. That's part of what it means to carry the cross. Man, sometimes our love is tested, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes our patience is tested. And sometimes it can be really tough. But he said if you don't, if you don't love, if you don't, if you don't carry your cross, you can't be my disciple. So coming after Jesus means to walk the path he walked. A true disciple is prepared to share the same fate as their master. Wow. To share that same fate. Consider the, well, we consider the pain that Jesus went through in crucifixion uh, a few times a year. But every day to think about the pain that Jesus went through for your sake. The giving up of his life. For your sake, for my sake. He hung upon a cross for our sakes. And sometimes that's what we have to do. We're called to do it. And I've said it, you know, multiple times in teaching. That we're called to hang on our own cross at times. To say this feels completely foreign to what it means to be a human being. I should, I want to self-preserve, you know. I want to have self-preservation. I want to protect myself. And sometimes love calls us to sacrifice that says lay down lay down your life you know for your friends for those around you sacrificial love so I want to carry my cross amen he told his disciples they would have to forsake everything to follow him consider your attachments in, in life and love less other passions and possessions because man possessions and passions can really get a hold of a person you know, things we enjoy doing, things that we uh, have worked hard for, 
whenever you give your life working for something and then you hold it as a possession and then God says, okay, sell everything that you have, come after me, follow me, I have a work for you to do in Africa. Are we open to that kind of voice from God? Because if we're not open to that kind of voice from God, then to what degree, what degree of commitment do we have in being a disciple? These are just questions that hopefully are, you know, bringing up some things in our hearts today. He also placed an expectation upon his disciples that they would follow his disciple-making model and go make their own disciples. In Matthew 28, 19, a disciple who does not make disciples is not a true disciple. So that's part of our cross-bearing, making other disciples. Um, you know, and, and that's, man, maybe that's something that we uh, consider that we're doing. We consider that we're doing that just somehow by osmosis. I don't know. Like, you, you go and you hang out or you do something with somebody and you feel like you've met your discipleship quota. Hey, I've been there. I've, I've been there too. But it, part of bearing our cross also means making disciples because that's the Great Commission. So you're telling me that if I don't make disciples, what, what we just referenced earlier, wow. So if I don't make disciples, I'm not carrying your cross. And if I'm not carrying your cross, I cannot be your disciple. And that sounds like a pretty strong invitation, not just an invitation, a command to make disciples, to reproduce uh, ourselves spiritually in other people. So when Jesus gave the command to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19, his clear expectation was that every one of his followers would obey him. He said to his disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me and keep my commandments, the New Living Translation renders the passage this way, If you love me, obey my commandments. Obey them if you love me. We know, that, we know what Jesus' love language is to us, but what is our love language to him? According to Jesus, our love language to him is obedience. So simply put, Disciples obey. Disciples obey. So if he told me that I have to go make disciples in order to bear my cross. And if I'm not bearing my cross, then I can't be his disciple. Man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth connecting and intersecting here. I want to obey. Let's take a look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20 real quick. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Why are we going? Why are we going therefore? Because all power in heaven and earth has been given to him. And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of study and scholarship going on right now and they found that a shorter reading of this is make disciples in my name it's a shorter reading but it's more accurate and a lot of scholarship is pointing to this that this that this verse should go baptizing them make disciples in my name 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So when we go, therefore, and we make disciples in his name, it is to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I find this interesting when we look at make disciples in my name because Jesus in John 17 said, I have manifested my name to my disciples. So baptize them in my name. And then Jesus says, I have manifested my name to them. Well, what is, what is this manifestation? What does it mean to make disciples in his name? It is to tell them that he is the one that forgives sins. He is the one that you must respond to in obedience and be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive his spirit to be saved. And the revelation, there is a revelation here because the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. So to teach them and, to, and make disciples in his name is to reveal this and to manifest this to other people, just as Jesus did. Because if we're going to be disciples, it means manifesting his name to other people, manifesting his truth, manifesting his gospel, manifesting his teachings, making, reproducing our spiritual selves and what God has given us in other people. If you have a gift of faith, then God wants that to go on and not stop with you. But we teach and we do these things because Jesus has been given all power in heaven and earth. So let, let me tell you something, though, that has, has really struck me in, in considering the call to discipleship. You know, Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He was rejected of the world. He was persecuted. His disciples in the New Testament were persecuted. And Jesus says, I've been given all power in heaven and earth. Go, therefore. But if we're not going, therefore, if we're not experiencing what our master has experienced, what our Lord has experienced, and he's our rabbi or our teacher, and we're coming up under him to learn from him and to mirror him, what power might we be missing because we, haven't, we simply haven't sacrificed the way Jesus calls us to sacrifice? Last Sunday, we talked about disciples who rejected following Jesus for multiple reasons. Some of them were because Jesus, uh, one of them volunteered. He said, hey, you have a large crowd following you. It looks like you got everything that you, that you need. Let, let me be your disciple. But Jesus said, no, that's not the attitude I want in a disciple. No, the attitude I want in a, in a disciple is someone who's going to come follow after me. Someone who's not, not going to fear the faces of other people. And even if you are rejected, to know that I've been given all power in heaven and earth for you to bring this message to other people. And all of a sudden, because we have the spirit of the living God in us, a spirit that's not a fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind, all of a sudden we, be, we begin to reach out to make disciples in other people and we start seeing miracles happen. And we start seeing prayers answered. And we start seeing awesome things take place. But that cannot happen if we don't bear the cross of Jesus and be willing to sacrifice and respond to his call today. We might have a shadow of it. And that's the scary thing. 
I might have a shadow or a type of godliness, but I might deny the power of it. To embrace suffering, to embrace, not suffering, but to embrace the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to go through for our sakes is to also embrace his power. It's also to embrace his, the power that says, I have all power in heaven and earth, and lo, I am with you always. I am with you always when you're teaching them. I am with you always when you're preaching my gospel. I am with you always when you're making disciples. It is not a power of your own, but a power of God. And all of a sudden, our attempts, our, our actions that are put to faith or put into work by faith because we believed, all of a sudden they're full of power that's not ours, but of God's. All of a sudden we can see family members saved. All of a sudden we can see loved ones healed. Because our proclamation of who He is is a declaration that He is able to forgive sins today and able to heal. To reject His suffering, to reject His sacrifice for us and not be willing to also suffer, to also sacrifice, is to deny a power that God wants us to have. Because He goes with us always. Think about Paul, who so many times was delivered from circumstances, who so many times was used of God for miracles. Think about how the disciples in the New Testament walked by people and their shadows healed them. Well, the New Testament was full of persecution, full of rejection. Maybe to be rejected, maybe to lose one's life really is what it means to save it. And I don't just mean death. I mean to lose our comfort, our com how comfortable we are. I mean to lose what it means to have possessions that are more important. I want to be willing to lose my life to save it today. And I want to be, I want to be so willing that the Lord at any time can use me to call someone else out of darkness today. So the idea that making disciples was optional for the New Testament believers never occurred to the first century followers of Christ. That's going to be some answers in your book there. The idea that making disciples was optional for New Testament believers never occurred to the first century followers of Christ. Somewhere along the way, Christianity bought into the false notion that only a small group of saints in local churches are leashed to the Great Commission. This notion carries the idea that missionaries are making disciples, extroverts are making disciples, radical saints are making disciples, but the rest of us can just sit there, sit and let their light shine and fulfill maybe departmental ministry assignments. We can come to that place to think only certain people are capable. But this misinformed notion has hurt us because there's not another, there's, because we come to a place where there's not another one of us sitting, sitting in the congregation. We haven't responded in a way that reproduces who we are spiritually in such a way that another one of us 
our spiritual heart, who we are as spiritual people. We haven't shared the epistle that's written in our hearts with another person. But if we do, think about the ramifications. Think of what it would mean for you to have another, another spiritual you sitting in, in a chair beside you or around you. Or multiple. To the credit of the modern apostolic movement, movement, though, we have rediscovered the first century reality that every believer is a minister or does ministry. The term minister should not be re relegated to the professional clergy. It is actually an action word in the book of Acts. Originally, all believers served. All believers went everywhere preaching the word. And all believers baptized. This is what everyone who said they believed did. And we know emphatically that it was not just the 12 apostles baptizing believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.41. Uh, in, in, in Acts 2.41, it makes the stunning announcement that 3,000 were added to the church. This has to mean that they were baptized in the name of the Lord on the day of Pentecost. Think, think about it. The Holy Spirit fell before 9 a.m. Peter preached the first gospel message in response to the four questions asked by the bystanders. The 3,000 also must have received the Holy Spirit at some point after Peter's message or during the message. And then they began baptizing. So if only 12 were doing the baptizing, using five minutes per baptism, that's really quick, it would have taken them over 20 hours to baptize. Assuming they could have been doing the baptism simultaneously, the Jewish day ends at 6 p.m. So we know that would not have been possible. The only way 3,000 could have been added to the Lord is if the apostles baptized the first wave and then commissioned their disciples to turn around and baptize their families and baptize their friends. Immediately out of the water, boom, in Jesus' name, baptize them. Wow. Hallelujah. It's not just certain people today. It's not just a certain, a certain calling today. It's every person, every individual. When you get baptized, go and baptize another. 3,000. Man. Hallelujah. Can we just lift our voices right now and lift our hearts to God? Lord Jesus, I feel your spirit in this place, oh God, the power of revelation, Lord, the power of calling in our lives, oh God, I pray that you help us in this moment to respond, Jesus. Lord, in this moment, in this lesson, just to respond with our hearts that says, I not only believe, Lord, that you want this done, but I'm going to take steps to do it, God. Help me, Lord, to identify with, with you and your sacrifice and your suffering, Lord, to have that spirit that is not a fear today. Reign in my life, God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. The Lord wants to use each and every one of us today. He wants you to be one that not only baptizes and goes and speaks, but also one who turns around and shows another how to do it. So archaeologists have uncovered the likely place where all these people were baptized and 
one magnificent plunge party. Man, it'd be nice to have a plunge party. Amen. In recent years, at the base of the stairs on the south side of the temple in Jerusalem, several large ceremonial baptismal pools called mikvahs have been discovered where perhaps the 3,000 were added to the Lord. So there's archaeological evidence that this took place. But I think that we need to be reminded today that we will not see first century results until we have first century behavior. If we want first century results, we have to have the same behavior that brought the 3,000 into the church in one day. There is no biblical mandate for only credentialed man ministers to baptize or preach. If every apostolic saint of God was empowered and released to do the work of the ministry Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4.11, we would enjoy exponential multiplication in the apostolic church. Let's look at Ephesians 4.1. It says, therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called. This vocation, it's invitation or your calling. So walk worthy of the invitation wherein you were called. And Ephesians is very connected to Colossians in the way that they are written and they're very interconnected. Let's look at what Colossians has to say. Colossians 3, 15 through 16. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So here we see that we're called into one body. We're called into one body. And then, and then we're, we're also told what to do. Dwell richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing, spiritual songs, singing. So what does it mean to walk worthy of our invitation wherein we were called? It means to, to, to be in the body of Christ as disciples. Because we're called into the body. That is our calling. That is our invitation. To be a part of the body. To share with the body all, who we are. Not just the people. Not just as people, because each and every one of us has gifts that other, uh, others don't, but we also have spiritual giftings. So to be a disciple is to, be, is to walk worthy of this invitation. The invitation to operate and bless the body of Christ. So how, what would happen to our local congregation if everyone began to make disciples? It'd be exponential growth. Exponential growth. And not only that, but it would also be encouraging and uplifting and edifying to the body when everybody does their part and everybody is a disciple. So it is now time to take the next step, that every believer is a disciple who obeys Jesus' command to go make more disciples. Making disciples should not be viewed as one of many ministries in the local church. Making disciples is not a department in the church like music or first impressions. In ministries such as these, saints of God find places to serve and become involved. However, when it comes to making disciples, according to the founder of the church, it cannot be relegated to a department or a one-off ministry. Some saints feel satisfied by making disciples, that making disciples is not their calling or gifting as perhaps it is for others. 
it's easy to get there to say, you know, I'm not just, I'm just not gifted. I just don't have, maybe, maybe our perception is that a, the gift of gab is what really helps get, you know, make, make disciples. We have that one thing in our head that says, man, if I just had that one gift, I'd be able to be a disciple maker. But it's not relegated to gifting the command to make disciples. Their thinking is that they can find other areas in the church to serve and exercise their gifts. Of course, there should be opportunities to use our gifts for God within the context of the local church. However, possessing one or more of the spiritual gifts has nothing to do with the call to make disciples. It doesn't matter if today if you aren't really sure what your spiritual gifting is. If you have a heartbeat today and breath in your body, God's calling us to respond to make disciples, to carry our cross. And while you're doing that, I will tell you from experience that as you carry that cross, as you respond to God in this way, even if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, God will reveal them to you as we just obey Him. There's things I didn't even know that the Lord wanted me to do or that I could do or that He would empower me to do. That whenever I got involved in certain things, the Lord revealed it to me. If we are sitting wondering about ourselves and who we are in the Spirit, maybe it begins with obedience and making disciples today. Romans 12 gives us a list of seven spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. Prophecy, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, administration, and mercy. Notice that disciple making is not included in this list. Perhaps the reason for this intentional omission is that making disciples is the mandate of the mission that Jesus Christ gave to all born-again believers. Maybe you know what your spiritual gifting is, and maybe you don't, but Mark and Luke provide accounts of the Great Commission with the word preach. Mark says, 16, Mark 16, 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24 and 47 says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So all of us have gifts whether we realize it or not, and God wants to use them to proclaim his gospel to the world for the purpose of making disciples. Doing our duty as a disciple through the gifts of God and through the gifts he gives us, it will result in edifying the body, even if we might not realize it. So consider what we do in our part of making disciples. If one is added to the church, it edifies the rest of the body because it encourages our faith. So if these gifts are for the purpose of edifying, as we respond in obedience, the gifts will become apparent in us, they will develop in us, mature in us, and whenever we let God use them, it will edify the body. So giving ourselves some excuses for why we can't make disciples or edify the body because we aren't the preacher, it's not an excuse to God. He expects all believers to make disciples by preaching and teaching the gospel. And we do that in some way or another. You're equipped. Before you even know what your spiritual gifting is, because we have the Spirit of God in our lives, we are equipped already to be able to do this. So figuring out who you are and being developed in the Spirit, yeah, it begins with obedience today. I want to obey the Lord. Amen. There's a difference between edifying and making disciples, though. And this is maybe a point where I want to begin, uh, begin closing. But 
Um, in the Old Testament, when a body was not whole, it, it, was, uh, it was unclean. And uncleanness, and what it means to be unclean in the Old Testament, and what it means to be whole in the Old Testament, is connected to what it means to be holy. To be whole was to be prepared for the holy. It was to be holy. So that's why sometimes we see in the Old Testament people being put into um, leprosy or leper colonies because they're not whole. They're unclean. And they're unclean because they got, well, I mean, I can't really put it any other way, but they, you know, they're losing body parts. I mean, if you don't have a finger, you don't have a hand, in the Old Testament, you couldn't enter into the temple because you were not whole or you were not prepared for the holy. You weren't clean. So I want to challenge you today because if we don't share, if we don't begin to under, uh, grow and find the gifts of God in our life and share the gifts of God with other people, not just in the church, but also those without, outside the church, and if we don't respond in obedience to be disciple makers, the body is not going to be whole as it should. And, and, it, and it can affect us. On a community level, it can affect us. So if you think, well, one person not doing their part, well, you know, it, can make, it, it does. It has an effect. I want to be in the presence of the holy today. And being in the presence of the Holy means to obey, to follow after God, and come after Him. So with that said, and everything that we've talked about this morning, I don't want to deny the power of the Spirit in my life. I don't want to deny the, the power of godliness. The Lord... The Lord wants to use us for something powerful. He wants us to be disciple makers. He wants us to be the New Testament church today. And if we don't obey, we're not going to be able to walk in that power that God wants us to walk in. So whenever he calls you and you feel his voice speaking to you to make a disciple, remember the lesson that we've covered today and let's go after him. Because that's what it means to obey. That's what it means to be whole. That's what it means to pursue the holy. Amen. If we could stand today, I'm going to go ahead and close. Let's have a, a word of prayer here. Um, the Lord calls us. He tells us uh, the importance of what it means to, to lose one's life. And one's life can... Losing one's life can be done in many different ways. It can be self-denial. It can be sacrificing time for another person. It can even be sacrificing your com our comfort today. And as we close here in prayer, I wonder if we could commit to God to more actively and intentionally give that kind of life to Jesus today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. I thank you for your word today and your call to make disciples. I thank you, Lord, that you've called us, God, to reproduce the, our spiritual selves in other people. Lord, I hear your call today, God, to walk into the holy places. And I pray today, God, that you will lose faith in each and every one of us unto obedience, O oh God. 
to carry the cross even when we don't understand Jesus what our gifts may be or what our callings may be but to simply respond to preach and teach your gospel Lord I pray God that you'll call us to deeper discipleship today Lord to hunger after you to desire after you Lord to seek Jesus what is holy not only in our personal lives God but on a commun communal level oh God help us Jesus to be willing to sacrifice and to give of ourselves as you gave of yourself for others and in doing that today, I pray, O oh God, that your power will be loosed in our lives like it never has been before. Lord, that all power in heaven and earth is yours and that you go with us always. Let it be a remembrance today that it is that power that goes with us. Every time, God, that we sacrifice. Every time, God, that we give of ourselves. Every time, God, that we give of our time. And that we give sacrificially, Jesus. In your precious name, I give you thanks today, Almighty oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here today. Um, let the Lord speak to you this week. And uh, consider making disciples. Amen. You're dismissed.